All right, now you can open your Bibles if you haven't already. Job, the book of Job, and we're going to chapter number one. Now, if you don't know where Job is, you'll find it in the middle of your Bible. So you can find Psalms, right? That's pretty easy to find, 150 chapters right in the middle of your Bible. Uh, Go to Psalms, and then right in front of it is the little, uh, well, it's not little, it's 42 chapters, the book of Job. And I want you to meet me in Job chapter number one. Job chapter 1. So uh, if you were here last Sunday uh, on Easter or last Saturday as we were having our resurrection celebrations, you will remember that we were drilling down on, focusing on one verse particularly in 1 Peter where we were thinking together about how it is that we can live with hope when life is hard. We were talking about keeping hope alive even though life is difficult. Here's the verse we were looking at. It was 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Here's what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody, both campuses and online, say it out loud. Say it with me. Praise God. Just say it. Praise. That's what Peter's saying. Praise be to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again, or we have been born again unto or into a living hope. There's the hope. We are born again into this living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That was the verse. And in that verse, we were learning together how to keep hope alive. Here's the principle that we learned. Hope is kept alive in the risen Christ. Somewhere in your notes, I hope last week you wrote that down. Hope is kept alive in the risen Christ. There's another way to say it. As long as Christ is alive, hope will live. And we know that Christ lives eternally, so our hope will never die. Uh, Last week we said it this way. When Jesus died on the cross, hope died with him. But on Sunday morning when he rose from the dead, hope came alive. And it continues to live today. Hope is kept alive in the risen Christ. That's the principle. And principles are wonderful. We need to understand biblical truths and biblical principles. But as wonderful as principles are, we need to live them out in practical ways in our everyday life. And I said to you last Sunday that let's lay the principle down, let's understand where hope is found, how it stays alive. But I said to you, if you'll come back for a few Sundays, five Sundays, that we would learn how to, how to uh, practically live with hope. In fact, I said to you that I wanted to give you some handles to this thing of hope, give you some handles that you can hang on to, some handles of hope that you can hang on to when life really is um, difficult. And so you're back, and I'm grateful that you're here, and I want to keep my promise to you and talk to you today about how it is that we can practically uh, live with hope. Now, any discussion, any biblical discussion about how to find hope in hard times must of necessity include an examination of the biblical book to which you have turned today, the book of Job, right? If you're going to think about hope in hard times, then you have to think about uh, the uh, hope that Job had. You have to examine the suffering uh, of this man, Job. And not only the suffering of Job, but really more importantly, the hope that Job had. 
what James calls in James 5.11, make a note, I'd encourage you to go mark that verse later. In the New Testament book of James, chapter 5, verse 11, Job uh, is mentioned to us as an example of a person who endured suffering with great faithfulness. In James 5.11, he says, you have heard of the patience of Job. The word patience there means his endurance or his faithfulness. So if we're going to think about having hope in suffering, we've got to think together about Job. And so I've asked you to turn to Job chapter number one. Let me begin by just orienting you to this well-known book. At least the name Job is well known. I'm not so sure the contents of the book of Job are so well known. I think this is a book that we know about, but we don't really frequently visit. It's probably uh, one of the most rarely read uh, books in the Bible. So let me orient uh, you to it just a bit by talking about what we assume. There are some things that we assume about Job and there are some things that we can know about Job as well. So let's, let's begin right there. If you're a note taker, jot some of these things down. One of the interesting facts about the book of Job is that we believe it to be one of the oldest books in the Bible. In fact, um, many people believe that the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Um, there, in fact, there are some rabbis, Jewish rabbis, who will say to you that not only is the book of Job the oldest book in the Bible, it's the oldest book ever written. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but there are some hints in the book itself. There are some things that are in the book, and in fact, there are some things that are omitted from the book which give us a hint about its age. Uh, we believe that uh, Job lived... Uh, Possibly before the time of Abraham, um, maybe during or just around, maybe just after the time of Abraham. If you want to know where that would put him in the biblical narrative, you would find, if Job lived in that time frame, you would find him somewhere around Genesis 9, maybe as far forward as Genesis 35, uh, 40 maybe. So, so in that biblical time frame, uh, probably is where the man Job lived. One of the things that's interesting about the book of Job, and it helps us place him so early, is that in this entire book, 42 chapters, there's no mention of Abraham or the patriarchs. There's no mention of the covenant of God that God made uh, with Abraham. And so that possibly would predate, uh, cause Job to predate Abraham. We also know that that um, Job offered sacrifices to God. Now, that's not surprising. But what is interesting is that he offered sacrifices to God without a priest. He did this on his own. And so this, is, this places him pre-Levitical period. Um, again, early in the, in the biblical story. There's no mention of the law anywhere in, in, the, uh, uh, in the book of Job. There's no, uh, there's no mention of Moses and so that would predate, that would cause him to predate Moses. So he's early, but he likely lived after the flood. We wouldn't place him before Genesis chapter number six, primarily because of his age. His lifespan was not long enough. Pre-flood, pre uh, men live uh, much longer than we do today. 
And he did not live to the length of time that people did uh, during the flood. So we would put him after the flood, but probably uh, around the time of Abraham, before the time of Moses. We don't know who wrote the book of Job. It's anonymous. Um, There are some people have opinions, but really they're just opinions. Some people say that Job wrote the book himself, uh, that he writes in third person the own account of his life. That could be. Um, Some people, particularly Jewish uh, scholars, believe that Moses actually wrote the book, that the story was handed down and long uh, known before Moses' time, but that Moses penned it. Uh, The truth is we don't know. That's all conjecture. Uh, But those are some things that we can assume about Job, his life, and his book. What are some things that we can know? Let's kind of move into the things that we know, and this is more important. Uh, Let me tell you, first of all, in case somebody ever comes to you and says, well, Job wasn't even a real person. The story of Job's an allegory. It's meant to illustrate some things to us, but it's not a true historic account of an actual person. Will that be incorrect? We know that Job was, in fact, a real person. I've already mentioned his reference in James 5.11. That speaks to the fact that he was, in fact, a real person. But there's a better evidence of that uh, than the uh, passage in James. Mark it down. It's Ezekiel chapter number 14. You can go read it later. Ezekiel chapter number 14 twice names Job along with Daniel, who we know was real, and along with um, uh, Noah, who we know was real. And so simply because of God, and by the way, in Ezekiel 14, it's God speaking, because God references Job with Ezekiel, uh, I'm sorry, with Daniel and Noah, then we know that Job was a real person. Secondly, we have an idea of where Job lived. Look in Job chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, there was a man in the land of Uz, or Uz, there was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. He lived in the land of Uz. Now, we don't know exactly where that land was, but we have some hints in the Scripture. We believe that it was in the location, somewhere in the location of modern-day Israel. A couple of reasons we believe that. One is because chapter 1 mentions the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, and that these two nations had come against and had attacked Job's livelihood and his family. And the Sabaeans would have come from the south and the, and the Chaldeans would have come from the east. And so they would have met in the middle. That would have been right there in uh, where we would find modern day Israel. There's another reason we believe that Uz was in the land of Israel though. And it's because in Job chapter 40 and in verse 23, there's a river mentioned and it's the Jordan River. And so it's apparent that Job knew the Jordan River. He was familiar with the Jordan River. And, um, and of course, that river flows straight through the land of Israel. So he lived in the land of Uz, and we believe that that was located somewhere in modern Israel. We know he was real. We have an idea of where he lived. Thirdly, we know that Job was a godly man. The, the text tells us this. Look at verses 1 and 2. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. The man was perfect. doesn't mean he was sinless. It means he was complete. He had integrity. Uh, He was perfect and upright. He lived righteously. He was one that feared God. He had a reverence for God. And he eschewed or turned away from evil. Now, what what an epitaph. What a testimony. Wouldn't you long for that to be your testimony? That when people speak of you, they would say, let me tell you about this person I know. 
I know this person, Joe, or I know this, this, uh, this lady named Betty, or maybe they're talking about you, and they would say, let me tell you something about that person. That person loves God, and they turn away from evil, and they, they, they are a person of, of great devotion uh, to the Lord. He was a godly man. Thirdly, we know that he was a wealthy man, uh, very well, uh, well off to do. Uh, when I think of wealthy, I always remember our first guide in Israel spoke. He's a Palestinian man. He spoke with broken English. And he would always, when he talked about rich people in the Bible, he would say they were very well off to do. Job was well off to do. Uh, he was a very wealthy man. Uh, in fact, the Bible tells us this. Look at it in verse number 3 of chapter 1. It says his substance, his portfolio, his balance, his bank balance was this. His substance was 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke or 1,000 oxen, and 500 female donkeys. If you add all those up, 11,500 head of livestock. By the way, this description of his wealth also allows us to put a date, some dating on when he lived. He was, his wealth was measured in livestock, not in gold, not in lands. And so he was very wealthy because of all of these possessions that he owned and many servants that he had. And then the final thing that we know about Job is that Job was a family man. So a real person, not an allegory. We know something about where he lived. We know he was godly. We know he was wealthy. And verse 2, verse 4, verse 5 tell us that he was a family man. He had seven sons and three daughters. He had ten adult children. Um, Verse number 4 His sons went and uh, feasted in their houses. Everyone on his day, they would take turns hosting family gatherings. Now, now they would get together. This is a beautiful picture of the family, by the way. So his children have been raised in such a way that they enjoy being together, and, and they would periodically, you know, let's say once a month or whatever, they would have a family gathering, and all the siblings would get together. And they would take turns hosting. That's what verses 4 and 5 are telling you. Now, this had been cultivated by Job, and no doubt by his wife as well. They would get together, verse number 4 says, they would call for their sisters to come and eat and drink with them. Verse 5, and it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now don't misread verse 5. It doesn't mean there's something immoral or sinful about what's happening in their family meals. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means that this provided for him a reminder, an opportunity, that I'm going to pray over all of my children. You know, when our kids were growing up, I had this idea in my mind. I don't know if I, I could have articulated it. I don't know if this was something I necessarily consciously thought about and looked forward to. But it was, a, it was a thought in my mind that when my kids grow up, when they're 18 or 20 or 22 and they're out of the house and out on their own, I don't have to worry about them anymore. Did you think that when your kids were little? Man, that's craziness. That, you worry about them more when they grow up and you pray harder. And so we, you know, Tracy and I do that now every day. We're like praying for our kids and our grandkids. And I see this in Job. He's praying uh, because he loves his kids. And think about it. Here's a man 
who has this reputation in town of a good man, a godly man, someone who has a great family, wonderful wife, beautiful children. All of his adult children have their own homes. They're all successful. They, they're, they're, they're getting together as a family. This is kind of the model family for everybody. He's got all of these uh, herds and flocks. He, he has all of these servants. He's, in fact, verse number three tells us the wealthiest man in the East. He's like the... You know, the, uh, the Elon Musk of his day, he, he created the Tesla camel. And, you know, he, he's just, everybody wants to be like Job. I mean, Job had it all. And it seems as if Job did well with it all. In other words, he managed it all well. He stewarded it, it all well for the glory of God. And then one day, in one tragic day Job lost it all he had it all and then he lost it all in fact the Bible says in verse number 1 there was a man and the Bible says in verse number 13 there was a day let's read about the day beginning in verse 13 and there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking in their eldest brother's house And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain thy servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped to tell thee. That would have been a horrible day. Half of his wealth taken in verse number 14. Half of his portfolio taken away, stolen, and all of his servants slain. Verse 16, while the first servant was yet speaking, there came also another and said, the fire of God has fallen from heaven and has burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I only am left alone to tell thee. Verse 17, and while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away and they have slain all the servants with the edge of the sword and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Do you imagine that by the end of verse number 17, Job is a little weak in the knees. He's staggering back just a little bit. He's learned that he's lost everything. And then in verse number 18, while this one was yet speaking, there came also another and said, thy sons and thy daughters. And you know that Job is going, no, 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 no. Camels and sheep and donkeys and oxen, not my children. Your children, your sons and your daughters were gathered together. They were drinking wine in their eldest brother's house, and behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness, and it smote the four corners of the house. It fell upon them, and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose, rent his mantle, tore his sash, shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked, Came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, 
and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. What a day. You know, all of us have days that we'll never forget. Days that so rock our world that everything about the moment or the moments that occurred during that day is etched into our memory. We know where we were. We, we will never forget it. Some of you remember uh, in November of 1963, you remember where you were, what you were doing when you heard that President Kennedy had been assassinated. I don't remember that. That was just before I was born, a couple of years, a year, a year before I was born. Some of you are old enough to remember that. Some of you may be old enough to remember 1865 when President Lincoln was assassinated. I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe not that old. I remember where I was when I heard the news of the first plane hitting the tower on 9-11. Many of you in the room remember that. We remember these days because they're so traumatic. The events of those days are so shocking. But it's not just kind of national or global events like that. All of us have days personally in our lives where they're so tragic that we'll never forget them. Maybe you remember the knock on the door at the strange hour of the night and you scurry out of bed and put on your robe and you open the door and you're greeted by a police officer, a highway patrolman, and they've come to do a death notification and you'll never forget that moment. Many families remember when the, when the chaplain comes from the army or the navy or the air force or the marines to do a, a notification, your son, your daughter has been killed in combat. You might remember the day that you discovered some betrayal. Uh, you, you, you remember where you were, how you heard, and, and what the circumstances were. Or you remember the phone call from the doctor. Imagine a day like that in Job's life, where in one day he lost his financial security which had been extreme. He, he lost his friends, each of these which we read over sometimes without paying much attention to it, but they would have been horribly devastating to Job. Each of these servants say, and they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword. These were more than servants. He was a good man. These were his friends, his employees. He lost his finances. He lost his friends. Most devastatingly, he lost his family, his children, his 10 children. And then, a bit later, look at chapter 2 and verse number 7. That verse says, So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto the top of his head. And he took a broken piece of pottery and he began to scrape himself all over his body. He's scraping these open, running boils these sores as he's sitting in the ashes and grieving and now he loses his health. And as if that weren't enough, the Bible tells us in verse number nine that he lost the support of his wife. Then his wife said unto him, do you still retain your integrity? Why don't you just curse God and die? You imagine this man sitting in the ash heaps 
of what remains of his life, kneeling next to 10 fresh graves of his babies, covered in sores and boils and scraping those as they itch and burn. And he's all alone in every sense of the word. And you have to say, what happened? What in the world? How could so much tragedy befall one person in one day? It's a good question. And as if it's true, as I said in the beginning, that this is not an allegory. This is a true story. Then how does this happen to one man? Well, thankfully, we know why it happened to this one man. And the reason that we know it is because the book of Job is similar to the book of Revelation in this way, in that it shows us a parallel view of two worlds. It it describes for us what's happening on the earth, but then it also, the scene shifts to heaven, and it shows us the dialogue in heaven. And the dialogue in heaven explains what's happening in the circumstances of Job. In fact, chapter 1 is like a sandwich, maybe to help you understand it this way. So the first few verses, verses 1 through 5 probably, would make up the, the bottom slice of bread of the sandwich. That's Job's good life, all of the good circumstances of Job. Then the meat of the sandwich, verses 6 to 12, that's the conversation in heaven between, between God and Satan. And then the top piece of bread on the sandwich would be verses 13 to 22, and that's Job's broken and tragic circumstance, Job's misfortune. And when you think of chapter 1 like that and you hold the sandwich up, it's the meat in in, uh, the middle part. It's those uh, verses 6 through 12, which reveal to us the reasons for Job's suffering. In fact, jot that down. Let's talk about it. The reasons for Job's troubles. The reasons for Job's troubles. You find it beginning in verse number 6. And going down through verse number 12, these verses are packed with insight. Packed with insight into the the working of God in the affairs of men. Look at it. Chapter number 1 and verse number 6. The Bible says in that verse, Now there was a day... When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Now that exact same event occurs again in chapter 2 and verse number 1. And it's worded exactly the same. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came in among them to present himself the Lord. Now what is this? What's happening when the sons of God are coming? Who are the sons of God? Well, the sons of God are the angels. The angels of God who are coming before the Lord. Now, perhaps not all of the angels, but certainly those angels that are charged with working in the affairs of men or in this particular season and in this circumstance, that those that are at work uh, in, the life of, in the life of Job and in that time and that environment. These are angels who have come to assemble. It's a roll call, if you will. They are presenting themselves before the Lord. They're giving an account. You can almost imagine it like a military roll call where fall in and all the angels appear before the Lord and salute and now we're here to give a report. All right? That we know that there are ranks among the angels and so these angels fall in rank and they come to give their report. 
What's particularly interesting is that Satan appears with them. He comes with them. And we know from chapter 2, verse number 1, that his responsibility is to be there to present himself before the Lord as well. He's not hanging out to harass the angels. He's accountable to God himself. And so he has to come and give a report to the Lord of what he has been doing. In both cases, he is asked by God, where have you been? Give a report, what have you been doing? By the way, in chapter 1 and verse number 6, where you see the word, the name Satan, it is the first mention of Satan in the biblical narrative. Now, you do find him mentioned once in Chronicles, which comes before Job, but chronologically, this is the first mention of Satan in the Scripture. He comes to give an account of himself to the Lord. And by the way, I find it interesting, you should never forget this, that Satan is under submission, under the authority of the Lord. He has to give an account, he is responsible to him, and he can only do what God allows him to do. We learn a bit about his, about his character in this passage. Look at verse number 7. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? What have you been doing? Satan answered and said, I've been going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down in it. In other words, he's prowling. That's what he does. He's prowling, prowling the earth. First Peter gives us some insight in chapter 5, verse 8, of why he prowls. He prowls to seek someone to devour. He's looking for opportunities to destroy. He prowls the earth. He also accuses God's people. Now, we'll talk about this in just a minute, but if Satan does anything in this passage, he accuses Job of some things. And we know this about his character. The Bible tells us in Revelation 12 that he is the accuser of the brethren. So imagine this moment. All the angels come. They present themselves before the Lord. Satan comes. Satan says to God, or God says to Satan, where where have you been? I've been prowling the earth, looking for someone to devour. And God suggests a question to him. God says to him in verse number 8, Have you considered my servant Job? Oh, you've been prowling the earth, have you? You've been looking for someone to tempt or to devour or to destroy. Have you seen, the word considered means noticed, have you noticed my servant Job? Well, there's none like Job. You know what is said of Job. God affirms it here in verse number 8. He is a perfect man, none like him in all the earth. He's upright, he fears God, he turns away from evil. He says the same thing in chapter 2 and verse number 3. But God says, have you considered, have you noticed Job? Chapter 1, verse 8. And Job, or, uh, Satan's response in verse number 9 is the key to understanding the events of the book of Job. Verse number nine is the key to understanding the reasons for Job's troubles, for his tribulations. Listen to what he says in verse number nine. Then Satan answered the Lord with a question. And here's the question. Does Job fear God for naught? Does Job fear God for nothing? Here's what the word means. It means for free. The question is, Does Job fear you, God, for free? Here's here's what he's saying. Here's the accusation. And this is an accusation that Satan makes not only against Job, but it's an accusation against God 
himself. Write it down. What he says in his accusation in verse 9 is, you, God, you have bought Job's devotion. Satan says, hey, God, you're guilty of bribery. Yeah, Job fears you. Sure he does. But he doesn't fear you for free. You have to pay him. You've bought him off. How does he charge God that he had bought off Job? Look at verse 10. You've made a hedge about him. You protect him. You have blessed the work of his hands. You've blessed his business, his flocks, and his herds. You've provided him with wealth. And chapter 2, verse number 5 says, you've guarded his health. Here's what Satan says. Listen, he says, hey, God, yeah, I've seen Job, your servant. Yeah, he fears you. Sure, he serves you. But he serves you because you've been good to him. You've given him good things. You've blessed him with good health. You've given him a good family. You've taken care of all of his protection. I can't even get to him. But then Job says this. If y'all are listening, shout amen. Job says, you've paid him off. You take away those payments and he'll curse you to your face. You take away the bribery and he will no longer be devoted to you. Here's the charge. Satan is saying, are you listening? Your God, the one you say you love, he's not worthy of your love unless he gives you good things. That's the charge. God's not worthy of your praise unless you like all the circumstances in your life. And so, God hears the accusation and he allows Satan, he gives Satan permission to test that theory. Let me tell you two things I want you to know. Number one, write this down somewhere. It is that we should know that Job's trials were intended to demonstrate the worth of God himself. The trials that Job endured were intended to do this, to strip away Everything that God had given Job to kick out all of the props that had held Job up and to then determine, is this God worthy of praise if I take away all the things he's been given me? The second reason that Job endured these hardships was to test Job himself. It was to test Job's motives for his devotion to God. Now, I want to ask you a question. And I want you to listen. Because I'm not asking y'all. I'm asking you. And I'm asking myself. What is the price of your devotion to God? What do you demand of God in order to be devoted to him? Another way to ask the question would, would be to say, what degree of loss are you willing to endure and still remain devoted to God? What is the price or the cost of devotion? 
Or another question would be, what is God worth to you? Now, Job will answer the question, and over these next few weeks, we're going we're gonna to watch Job walk this out, and we're going to see him answer the question. But let me just give you a little, a little bit of a foretaste of what his answer is going to be. When you have an opportunity, you might want to turn over to Job 13 and verse 15. I'll just show it to you on the screen today. Here, Job says, though he slay me, there's the price. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. In fact, he goes on to that verse to say, I, I'm, I still don't understand it. I still can't wrap my head around it. I still will seek to defend myself before him and, and understand it. But regardless of whether or not I ever understand the pain, even until he takes my own breath, I will trust in this God. All of us need to learn to answer those questions like Job answered. But I want you to know that every experience of suffering in this life, every experience that takes us through the deep valley of hardship, every time somebody comes up and drills holes in the bottom of our hope bucket and hope begins to drain away, every experience of suffering in this life is ultimately a test of the worthiness of God to be praised and of our devotion to him. And so we're going to learn to answer these questions. What is the price of our devotion? Now, let me close today by just helping you to see how Job responded because you look at this and you wonder how a man could endure such loss in one day and what his response would be. And I want you to see Job's response to his troubles. They're beautiful, actually, to behold. Remember, before we read these, Job is a man like you and I are men and women. He's a person. And so just like you and I would be reeling from a day like he's enduring, just like you and I would be you know, buckled to our knees by such horrible news coming to us, Job was enduring that kind of grief and confusion as well. Everything about what had happened that day screamed at him, God has obviously forgotten you. Everything that happened that day screamed at him, why would this occur? How could God allow such tragedies to occur? But what we must do in those moments when we are trying to keep hope alive is to follow Job's example. Now listen, if you're suffering, I'm going to suggest three things that you need to do. And when you suffer, and all of us will, when we suffer, there are three things that we need to do. I'm going to suggest them to you now and we'll go home. Number one is this, worship. When you suffer, I want you to worship. Chapter number one and verse number 20. Following, by the way, verse 19, which says, after your camels were taken and your sheep were taken and your oxen were taken and your donkeys were taken and all of your servants were slain with the edge of the sword, verse 19 says, and by the way, your 10 children are all dead as well. And in verse 20, the Bible says, and Job arose and rent his mantle, tore his sash, shaved his head, fell down upon the ground, and he worshiped. The word worship means to bow, to get low. And it would be my conviction that Job didn't just get to his knees. He probably was on his face, worshiping before God. It means to go low, and as I go low, 
I'm exalting him. And he makes this incredible statement that we sang a few minutes ago. Naked came I into the world. Naked I will leave the world. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken. What Job is saying is, I can't, listen, listen. I came into this world with nothing. I will leave this world with nothing. And anything that I have in between my arrival and my departure has been given to me by the good hand of God. And if he gave it, then it is his to take away. Worship in the midst of loss is an acknowledgement of the ownership of Almighty God. That when I lose something or someone, I cannot claim God had no right to take because they're mine and he ripped it away from me. Worship acknowledges that everything that I have has come from him. It was his to give to me or not, and it is his to take from me or not. And so the Lord gave, bless him, and the Lord took, bless him. In fact, in chapter 2, when his wife says, curse God and die, says, you speak like a foolish woman. Shall I expect God to give and never to take? When you're suffering, I want you to worship. When verse number 21 says, blessed be the name of the Lord, it means exalted be the name of the Lord. In the midst of my loss, blessed be his name. In the midst of my suffering, blessed be His name, in the midst of my confusion and my fear and my uncertainty and my emptiness and my grief, blessed be his name. Because he is not uncertain and he is not unsure and he is not confused. Blessed be the one who knows what he's doing. When you're suffering, I want you to worship. Secondly, when you suffer, I want you to follow the advice of Job or the the, uh, example of Job And be quiet. Be quiet. Hurting people tend to lash out. One thing that we know is true, we've all experienced this, is that hurting people tend to hurt. They tend to hurt other people. And so hurting people not only lash out at other people, but hurting people lash out at God. How many times have we heard people say, I've certainly heard it over the years in ministry, people bawling their fist up, oh God, how could you? I've had people say to me, and honestly with a bit of arrogance, I'm so mad at God. He can handle it. I'm talking to God about it. I mean, I get the sentiment. I understand Be careful. You may get an answer like Job gets later on in the book. And we'll talk about it. I understand the emotion of loss, but here's what I suggest to you. When you hurt, just be quiet. Just grieve quietly. Because the Bible says that Job, he got quiet. It says that in verse number 22 that in all of this, Job did not 
charge God. He didn't sin, and he did not charge God foolishly. It means to bring an accusation against God. God, you're wrong. God, you're mean. God, you're evil. God, you don't care. That's to charge God foolishly. God's never dumb, he's never unkind, and he always cares. So don't charge God foolishly. And let me encourage you, if you've done so, I I want to encourage you to repent. Say, God, I'm sorry. I mean, this is my pain, and God knows your pain. He understands. But repent of charging God foolishly. Be quiet. Let his spirit minister to you. Number three, and lastly, when you suffer, cling to what you know to be true. When you don't know what's going on or why it's happening or why hope is draining from your life, hang on to what you do know. And I want you to look at chapter 2, verse number 3 and verse 9. After Job loses everything, Satan presents himself before the Lord again. The Lord says, have you considered Job? And at the end of verse number 3, he says to Satan, for he is holding fast, clinging to his integrity. And his wife says the same thing in verse number 9 of chapter 2. His wife said to, you, to him, why are you clinging, retaining your integrity? Why are you hanging on to what you know to be true? What's his integrity? What, what's he clinging to? What's he retaining? He's retaining his testimony from chapter 1, verse 1. He's upright. He's godly. He fears God. He turns away from evil. What was true of his devotion to God before the suffering remained true in the suffering and after the suffering. That's clinging to his integrity. So you may not understand the suffering. In fact, you probably won't understand the suffering. And you might go your entire life without understanding the suffering. Tracy and I walked through a situation years ago. And a friend of mine said to me, you may never know why this, you may never see resolution of this in your lifetime. And I said to him, shut up. I did. But you may not in your entire life. But when you Live with suffering that you don't understand and you don't know and you can't explain it. Then don't traffic in what you don't know, making charges against God. Just be quiet and cling to what you do know is true. And you will find that a rock to keep you from sinking. Okay, It won't necessarily take all the pain away. Doesn't mean you're not going to continue to grieve. But you won't sink. Because you'll fall upon the truth, you'll remain humble before your God, and you'll worship him, not because he paid you to worship him with good circumstances, but because he's worthy of your worship, regardless of what he does or doesn't do. Amen? Satan's accusation against your God, against Job, was really more of an accusation against God. Hey God, you're not worthy. It's when we look up to heaven, we say, you know what? Glad you're there, but I'm not going to like you and I'm not going to love you and I'm certainly not going to worship you unless this is right in my life. This is, there's, there's health, there's blessing, there's provision, there's no hardship. Everything is good and I'm always happy. You, you pay me off like that, I'll worship you. But the minute you pull those things away, I'll determine you're not worthy of my worship. That's the test. And here's what I would suggest to you. He is worthy. Amen. He's worthy.